Hey everybody, this is Ted Wynn, and I'm really excited about uh, this episode of Perspective. I'm actually excited about all the episodes, <laughs> but this one today is going to be um, interesting. Um, a longtime friend of mine, uh, Damian Connors, I always say he's one of the smartest people I know. Um, is going to talk to us about his time at SCLC, that is a Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is an organization that Dr. King used to head. Um, Damien also was executive director of that, clearly after Dr. King. Um, we're going to talk about that civil rights organization and Black Lives Matter um, and a few others just kind of in the light of everything that's happening in our country today, the relevancy, relevancy of those institutions and what they should look like. Um, I trust that you'll enjoy this um, once you finish listening. I hope it inspires you to be a part of some organization, whatever you feel like it's important to you, whatever you want to be a part of, to get involved in the process and be committed to being a part of the change that we need to see. Hope you enjoy. Hey, so I want to welcome you guys to uh, another installment of Perspective. Um, today we are um, privileged to have an amazing guest who has a lot of history, information, insight, um, and I think will take us on an incredible journey. What? Why is Siri talking? <laughs> Herself. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Siri, wait, wasn't it just that she was talking? She was talking to herself. <laughs> hey, Siri. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know if that's an indication of what is to come in this podcast. <laughs> but, oh, my goodness. Hilarious. That's, that's good. So, anyway, uh, Damian Connors is with us today. And um, uh, I want to just jump right into our conversation. First of all, thank you for being a part of the podcast. And um, can you give people just a little bit of a backstory? Um, um, our angle today will be talking about civil rights organizations, i.e. SCLC, NAACP, and then looking at kind of how Black Lives Matter. Um, and you could, you know, Me Too, Time's Up, I guess those could be considered uh, movements um, for social justice causes. Just the difference in kind of the then and the now. I mean, I know you weren't literally around to march with Dr. King, <laughs> but because you, you know, were the executive director for the organization that he was um, head of, um, I want to just kind of give, give people some insight to where we were and, and where we are and possibly where we're going. So you can just give people a little bit, if, can you just give people a little bit of insight or background into your history and how you got where you are? Yeah. So first of all, thank you for the invitation to come on to this show. Um, I appreciate that. Um, I think that this is a timely topic, given some of the new work that's being done by uh, Reverend Barber and the NAACP around the Poor People's Campaign um, and kind of the new or, uh, movements that are happening throughout the country to address some of the current uh, issues that we're facing, which aren't new, but, you know, just kind of a... Um, more current current stream of uh, challenges that we're facing as people of color, mm -hmm. but how I got to where uh, I am and where I was specifically with the SELC um, was that my earlier career was really around um, working in schools. Um, I did some instructional reading, um, work with kids in elementary and high school, and I did some counseling uh, with kids in elementary and in high schools. And so a lot of my work was, uh, you know, being deeply immersed in the realities of kids who were struggling with um, 
some of the challenges that, you know, you face as being a, a, a young child of color um, from an impoverished community. And so that work was in Newark, New Jersey. Um, so I really dedicated the majority of my life to figuring out how do we address those systemic issues and challenges and how do we do it in a way um, that really breaks the cycles of poverty um, that caretakers um, are kind of a part of, but their children inevitably um, become uh, looped into as a result of kind of uh, how uh, systemic racism works. Um, so um, after graduating seminary, uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, I transitioned over to Emory um, Candler School of Theology, and I was working there as a teaching associate uh, where, when I met Dr. Bernard Lafayette, who's the board chairman of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And um, he asked me to volunteer uh, for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Um, I began volunteering there, helping them during their period of um, kind of really regrouping after uh, they had gone through an extensive battle around who the board of directors uh, was going to be officially uh, and um, preparing for the transition of Bernice King to come in as the president of the organization. Uh, during the time that I was volunteering, I was really helping them uh, get some internal workings together to figure out what their next steps were going to be and how to get a handle on um, much of the work that was going on on a daily basis, but really had no constraints or parameters around um, how it happened and got done. Mm -hmm. um, did that for a little while, uh, and then they asked me to actually come on uh, when Bernice decided to not take the position um, due to some challenges there. And um, so I came on as the program director um, with the Reverend Dr. Howard Creasy. Um, and at the time, the executive director was... Uh, uh, um, a woman who um, was based out of, well, originally from Louisiana, but uh, based in Georgia, um, an attorney. Um, and a lot of her uh, work was to really pull the organization together and to figure out how to utilize the, the folks she had around her in order to do that. And so she and I had a really great working relationship. Um, we did a lot um, together around figuring out what programs would look like and how to develop a national kind of program schematic that made sense for the current chapters and affiliates that were active on the ground doing meaningful, meaningful community organizing work. Um, and so it was we were intentionally outward looking with regard to how we engaged those folks and didn't want to start with the board of directors, folks who had some of the institutional history and knowledge, but were a source of like many of the, t the challenges. So we wanted to look outward to the folks who were living and breathing and doing the work who were invested and involved in community. Hmm. Um, so we did that. Um, and we were very strategic about how we uh, met with chapter and affiliate leaders, how we engaged them around the projects and work that they were doing in community, um, kind of to get a sense of their community organizing methods and practices and processes and their issues. Um, and so the program kind of schematic that we developed was one that in, uh, included education, um, voting rights as well as um, uh, health and health related issues, uh, disparity issues. And um, so we did a lot of that work, um, tried to you know make some cool programs as a way of generating funds um, and as a way of doing, doing that in a way um, that was strategic and not just kind of shooting from the hip, um, which I think is kind of one of the, uh, <laughs> the uh, pitfalls of, of, of many of the legacy organizations nowadays. Um, and um, you know, you know, just based on our conversations, how I, how I feel about a lot of that. Yeah, sure. um, but after she transitioned out, uh, Dr. Lafayette um, asked me to, um, 
you know, move into the executive director role. I initially denied that. Uh, I didn't accept the that uh, offer um, because I just knew I, I didn't accept it because I knew the level of um, how do I say this? Uh, I understood what was required in that position and the organization and that particular phase and moment of the life of the organization. And I really just was not interested in dealing with the, the people who I would have had to interact with during that time. Um, and that's not to say that there weren't really amazing people on the board um, and in leadership of the organization, because I think that they all are amazing. Um, but I was really fond, uh, and still am very fond of uh, Dr. Lafayette and the work that he does. And so on account of his request, I eventually did take the um, the offer and um, I was really um, compelled to do it too because I understood that there was, you know, a rich legacy of folks who held that position, mm-hmm. um, um, like Ella Baker, you know, um, yeah. like uh, Andrew Young, you know, like Y.T. Walker, all of those folks who um, really committed their lives and their energy and their efforts and efforts and strategic thinking mm-hmm. um, to the organization. And so that's where I fall today. You know, I feel like the organizations, um, particularly legacy organizations, don't give enough strategic thought um, to how they engage people that they claim to be supporting. Mm-hmm. And so um, in, in large part, that was a lot of the reason that I decided to transition out um, of the organization um, to really invest my time and energy in a, in a particular context where I can be connected to the people whose lives, um, um, you know, I was working to impact um, and really engage them in a meaningful way around what they thought next steps should or could look like with regard to the issues they were facing. So to that point, are you um, look, looking at that, what you, you saw and, and the potential, what you were going to have to, to deal with, um, could that be could that be labeled like you know an old mindset versus a current mindset? Um, I think that it's the difference between being strategic and being impulsive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the the impulsive piece for me is connected to the inability to sit down um, in a constructive way and think thoroughly and intensively about. Um, how you're going to engage an issue, but to do it in a way where you engage the people who you're talking about impacting. And there had always been, uh, to some degree, and, it, and it's not from everyone, um, because as you know, Dr. Lafayette, it's all about community organizing, sure. um, all about you know really getting you know into community and working with young people. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a resistance to that because I feel like that there was this sense of you know I've been around a long time, I know what I'm talking about, I'm yeah. the content. Uh, subject matter expert. And so the expert knowledge outweighed the public knowledge. And I think to a great degree, that didn't allow for the space to really include in a meaningful way the opinions, the voices, um, the concerns of the folks who were essentially the um, hands and arms of the organization, which were the chapters and affiliates. And so, you know, the impulsive piece of it was just more or less, let me do what I want to do as the quote unquote expert. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to figure out in that context what the qualifiers were to kind of make folks feel like they were experts, right? Mm-hmm. Especially experts to the exclusion of people, because most experts, you know, to a great degree, rely on the generation of data as a means to validate the positions. Sure. But this was just a matter of personal perspective. 
you know, and so because of that, there was not um, a commitment to thinking strategically about how to develop programs, how to do it in a way, um, or campaigns for that matter, and how to do it in a way that the folks that we're talking about impacted understood what was happening and can be involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, so, what, it, what would you say is the value of personal perspective, and how can people utilize that in helpful ways? Uh, can you say what was the first part of that? I, I missed the first part. How, how, what would you say the value of personal perspective is, and then how can that be used in positive ways? Well, so from my days of like doing community organizing in Connecticut, one one of the kind of really valuable lessons that I learned was that um, you really cannot be an advocate for people if you don't understand or have listened to their stories, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You can't speak on that. We never can fully speak on behalf of anyone else, period. But to the degree to which you're advocating for them, you have to have a deep understanding of what what, what their story is um, and trust that they know what they're talking about. Right. Um, And again, that goes back to me to this kind of idea of epistemological privileging and the ability to be able to um, trust um, the knowledge from wherever space, from whatever space it comes from, you know, um, it may be based out of wisdom and experience and maybe not education, but that doesn't invalidate it. And um, I think to that degree, the personal perspective is really a matter of like a lived experience. You know, I've lived these things. These are my reality. You know, the same conversation is happening now around black women and, um, yeah. you know, uh, postpartum issues. Um, and so, to a great degree, I think that that is dismissed yeah. um, as a true source of knowledge and knowing, mm-hmm. and it unfortunately impacts the way that programming is done. And so everything is kind of done episodically, kind of impulsively, mm-hmm. or is very ceremonial as a means of like raising attention or raising money, mm-hmm. um, but not being impactful. You know, we can have as many dinners, co- conferences, conventions that we want to have, yes. but if we don't have a policy agenda, if we don't have any uh, meaningful kind of campaigns developed to uh, lobby Congress uh, or congressional leadership uh, for a particular on a particular issue, then you know it's all for naught. You know the social movements, and this is the difference between the 1950s and 60s and now, is that there was strategy there. You know these folks wrapped their minds around how they were going to address issues. You know so we didn't get the civil rights bill, we didn't get the voting rights bill, we didn't get all of the uh, we didn't get the desegregation of the buses because folks were just like saying let's go have a banquet and give like three three millionaires an award right like it was let's think strategically about how we're going to tackle this issue and these are the things that we need everyone to be involved in the activities we need everyone to be involved in in order to fully kind of address these these issues and, and see some traction you know um, but now it's just like. If it's not a pissing contest between who's the loudest, who's going to yell, scream the loudest at a, a memorial rally, you know, it's like who's going to raise the most money. And it's like you raise the most money to what end? How do we see that money, uh, you know, being transformed or trans, you know, translated into some type of um, activities or benefits to the communities that, um, are, you know, that these organizations are claiming to, um, you know, want to support and um and, and move, you know, to uh, a different space. And, and, and from my perspective, that that's the challenge, you know, I think it's a, a waste of resources. Yeah. I think that it's, um, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of effort, space and energy yeah. when there's so many other grassroots organizations out here, um, like the black lives matters, uh, um, group who are, they're doing quite a bit of work, you know, and sure. 
that looks different, differently across the country. Yeah. Um, but you have yeah. the Dream Defenders. Um, and, you know, you have all of these kind of really small, nascent organizations who are doing meaningful, substantive uh, change-making um, uh, work, but are not, they don't have the funding. They don't have the support. They don't have uh, the resources. Right. And these uh, many of the legacy organizations are soaking up resources, but it's only really to support, like, nothing. You know, beyond beyond <laughs> beyond ceremony, right? Yeah. So, I, so, yeah. so, what do you feel like in terms of that? Like, I I was I was watching this clip of um, some some folks who are associated with Black Lives Matter, and um, they um, Hillary Clinton was about to give a speech, and um, you know there was this, a conversation of sorts backstage, and so they asked her. Um, you know, what her agenda was, what she planned to do, you know, a whole nine, they were, you know, there were, there was the potential for them to protest. And so she asked them, like, what are your agenda items? And, you know, kind of what do you want to see happen? And their response was very interesting. They basically said, um, we want to see a basically a deconstruct. I mean, this is, I'm paraphrasing. We want to see a deconstruction of systemic racism. And she kind of was like, okay, I get that, but how does that, what does that look like? And they basically said, that's for you to figure out. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so it, it was interesting because she, she basically said, you know, during the civil rights movement, they had agendas, they had, we're going to do this, you know, voting rights, civil rights, you know, uh, uh, housing rights, housing, how, Fair Housing Act, all this other stuff. And they basically said to her, again, I'm paraphrasing, is that, you know, systemic racism, systemic oppression is a construction of white people. We don't have the power of the wherewithal to deconstruct it. Our job is to, you know, shout about it, to complain about it, to protest about it, to to highlight, underline, bold print, italicize it. It is your job then, um, because you are aware of it, to deconstruct it. What do you think about that idea? Okay. So I'm just trying to, I was, as you were speaking, I was trying to imagine a world where that would make sense. Um, and it primarily doesn't make sense for a number of very obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. And the primary one being, just think about 1968 and Dr. King's last uh, campaign, the Poor People's Campaign, yeah. right? Yeah. It was really an agenda to address poverty yeah. and all of the kind of ancillary challenges that are related to poverty. Mm -hmm. But it was very specific and it was very strategic. And anybody will tell you, like, you, you develop in a strategic plan or even just like a, a simple uh, uh, plan to kind of guide a department or whatever in a, in a nonprofit organization or whatever, wherever, um, you should have, like, really smart goals. You know, specific, measurable, attainable, something that's realistic and timely. Mm -hmm. yeah, it, and that's any type of planning. So if you just from a principle basis um, – look at what it takes to achieve a goal, you know, there are always tools and steps in place to help you do that. Mm -hmm. Now, on a larger scale, if you're talking about uh, the systemic issues of, um, of discrimination, disparity, et cetera, mm -hmm. um, there has to be a plan. There has to be specific asks. You know, you can't trust somebody else to chart your destiny for you. Mm -hmm. If you have something that you want to achieve, you should be able to articulate how you're going to get there and, you know, what, you deem the best path is to get in there mm -hmm. and whether or not there's a principle base that will undergird how you, how you move toward that goal. 
you know, so I was recently in conversation with someone and we were talking about some various tools and practices that, um, you know, a few organizations have in place in order to help move communities um, to a place where they're seeing impact and change. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the challenges that we we saw um, that the civil rights movement had an answer for was just this idea of nonviolent conflict reconciliation or nonviolence as a principled way of dealing with issues and challenges or assessing what is an issue or a challenge, mm-hmm. right? So if you break that down into like smaller pieces, if you're talking about systemic issues, you know, and you've identified poverty as they did in 1968 and the, you know, the frameworks and, you know, are, are still in place for folks to go back and kind of figure out how to use them. Mm-hmm. Um, then they figured out, you know, well, this is what we're going to do. This is what our, gonna, our pa- campaign is going to look like. These are the cities we're going to focus on first. You know, we're going to uh, address this via uh, policy. And here, here are the target um, legislators that we're going to be in conversation with. Here are our partners and our friends. You know, so if you look at basic community organizing principles mm-hmm. and steps and tools, you know, it's all in place for these organizations to do that work. But there's not a willingness to really do the thought work. And when you talk about the legacy of folks like Ella Baker, mm-hmm. you know, who supported SNCC, um, who was the uh, executive director of SELC, um, Andrew Young, who ascended to, you know, through the ranks of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and then became mayor of uh, Atlanta and ambassador. Um, and then you think about Y.T. Walker, who was very strategic, um, very artful preacher, mm-hmm. um, but still very smart and astute, keen mind. You know, I think that the lack of thought work um, that is given to a lot of the the, the, the movement, the lack of movement, I guess, among civil rights organizations mm-hmm. um, can be attributed to like a neglect of thought leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see that you see the uh, kind of the opposite of that and the newer movements that are emerging. Dream Defenders, Black Lives Matter, um, Black Youth Project. All of these folks are brilliant, you know, and I don't mean brilliant in a book sense, but they're brilliant as far as they've committed their minds, their energy, their hearts, their um, their time to really digging, exploring, trying to figure out, you know, what are some of the root causes here and how do we address this yeah. from the ground up? You know, like not just kind of throw a blanket over it and hope it goes away, but how do we, how do we fully, you know, grapple with the challenges that we're facing and do it in a way that um, future generations can be impacted in a positive way. And I don't know that that commitment is there because I think that most folks, particularly baby boomers who are leading some of these organizations, are more concerned, concerned about patting their pockets than, you know, really preparing a way for people. Yeah. So, so, so moving, moving, moving away from um, organizations, not moving away from, in, in a literal context, I don't mean to move away from SCLC or NAACP, but in terms of our conversation, just moving to to the the organizations that you have um, mentioned, like Black Lives Matter, um, like Dream Defenders. Um, what do you feel like are some things that, because there are lots of people who listen to this podcast who, you know, be in different spaces and places. What are some things that you feel like people can do in their community um, should they join NAACP, SCLC, Black Lives Matter? Like, what are things that you feel like people can do in their own communities to help um, deconstruct issues of systemic oppression and, you know, highlight certain uh, complexities that we have, issues that we have? Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm thinking about how to respond to this in a way that I'm not doing that thing that everybody uh, kind of critiqued uh, Obama for doing. 
which is saying, oh, y'all, y'all need to do X, Y, Z and y'all don't need to be doing X, Y, Z. Right. Uh, so I, I kind of don't want to do that. But what I will say is that um, there is an urgent need to pay attention um, to um, local politics, uh, because I think that that's where a lot of movement is happening yeah. and a lot of regression yeah. is happening. And I say that from the perspective of having worked in Bridgeport, Connecticut for three years um, and that, uh, you know, folks didn't show up to the school board meetings. You know, there were a handful of people. And I do understand that there's the challenge of people who live in poverty, who have been in poverty, who have little to no education, mm-hmm. um, not understanding what their role is in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's so important to go, even if you don't know what in the world folks are talking about when you get there. Yeah. Like, you go and you will eventually figure it out. You will figure out the links between decisions that are being made at those meetings and how it affects your kids or your family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that that's easier said than done because the reality is that folks sometimes don't have the time. They work two and three jobs. They got three or four grandkids that they're taking care of. Yeah. But there is the necessity to kind of to show up, you know, because at the end of the day, you have a handful of people who have their own personal and self-interest in, in mind when they go to these meetings mm-hmm. and they get what they want because they show up. Um, so, you know, the first thing I would, I would say is to show up to local um, uh, meetings, whether it be board of education, whether it be city council, mm-hmm. um, or at least watch on TV, you know, there's a public access channel that allow you to do that. Um, and then figure out where you can plug into a local uh, civil rights or social justice oriented organization mm-hmm. um, that may need your support or your dollars or just your presence um, so that they can, you know, claim you <laughs> uh, as a part of their membership as a means of, you know, generating more dollars for the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you should do it in a way that you are very clear, just like when voting about what the organization stands for with their kind of operational practices are uh, and be clear about their agenda and what, who, who the leadership is and, and what they're trying to accomplish. Um, because a lot of times you can give money to organizations and they'll take your money, but they don't care about anything you have to say or don't want you to contribute in any meaningful way. So I think that to be judici- judicious about how um, you join um, organizations is, is important. Um, do you, how do you find people find that out? Because I'm, I'm, what I've found is, I mean, it's, it's anecdotal. I haven't done any like you know broad-reaching poll or survey. But when I'm having conversations, I think if you and this is my speculation. I think if you went up to most people and let's just deal with you know with with communities um, you know that are that are impoverished. I don't think if you ask most people when is your school council meeting or your city council meeting or your school board meeting that they would even know one that they might not even know what that is. Mm-hmm. that it exists and that they should participate. <laughs> so I guess maybe a question is how, is there something that we do and know it's going to be different based on locality to, to push that information to people, you know, to get them interested in it. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, one of the things we did in Connecticut was we encouraged all of the parents and grandparents who were um, connected to the organization to um, have conversations with their local elected officials, right? Mm -hmm. And not on any particular policy-related issue, but just kind of say, hey, this is what I'm experiencing on a day-to-day basis. Like, what are your plans to address it, right? Um, And um, that's how we got a group of grandparents 
who were frustrated, tired, many of whom had, you know, custody of three to five grandkids mm-hmm. um, to develop a community action where they actually invited all of the folks that they had been talking to on a one on one basis mm-hmm. to a community forum where they requested for the um, the criteria for the kinship and respite grants that are given uh, in the state to caretakers. Uh, that criteria to be changed from a income-based criteria to a needs-based criteria. And they got the probate court judge to actually um, agree to do that for them. Mm. But that was only after having one-off conversations. And prior to that, they didn't see the efficacy in having those type of conversations because, you know, they were thinking like, you know, we talk, we talk, we talk, we talk, we talk, we don't get anywhere. But if the strategy is, you know, just say like, hey, here's what I'm facing you know, these are issues that yeah, I'm confronting. Like, what are your plans to deal with it? And you realize that 12 other people have that same issue or concern. Yeah. That's where the power is, you know. And I think that we've lost the ability to kind of create and to come into community mm-hmm. in meaningful enough ways to figure out where our common concerns are and figure out how to organize around those concerns and really um, move forward in a way that we could, you know, see results. And that, for me, is the biggest challenge with, again, going back to organizations that are in place mm-hmm. that aren't doing real strategic, meaningful sure. co- uh, community community organizing. Sure. They're not bringing folks together. And if they are bringing them together, it's to, like, dress up and give a handout awards, right, um, <laughs> all for the sake of keeping the doors open and, um, you know, saying that I took a picture with somebody. But, you know, folks don't have time for that. This is life or death for many people. I think that's what that is what is I, I'm thinking about that now and one of the things that even listening to you talk about that happened in Connecticut with that group of um of of women um or, or, or persons who had who were taking care of grandkids, I just think it's 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 important for us to hear those stories. Um, because I think a lot of us can identify with those, you know, what can identify with having needs in our community and maybe feeling frustrated at how to handle them. I mean, we're all very good at, you know, posts and, you know, Facebook shares and the like, but no politician cares about an Instagram post or a Facebook post or rant if that's all it's going to be. Right. Doesn't doesn't impact them getting voted. You know, whether they're going to be elected or not, not going to impact their campaign dollars. So they don't really care. And so I just I do want to think about like how we can literally, you know, do things that create more, you know, what we have from action items and, and, you know, create kind of uh, movement in our communities to get the kind of change that we want and deserve. Um, Thinking about that, do you think that. do you feel like we'd be better served? And when I say we, I mean people of color, I guess, um, in this time, if we had, you know, still had a Dr. King or somebody in that, like a quote unquote person to look to a leader, so to speak, or someone to kind of, you know, organize us. Well, no. Um, and mostly because I think that in his day, Dr. King was not widely heralded as like the liberator of black people, mm-hmm. though he was, you know, respected among uh, most black people. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was heavily critiqued. And this is, yes. you know, when you look at that, the model, I'm not sure that it's the kind of catch all, you know, model that really moves us in a direction. I think that he came at a particular moment in time Mm -hmm. and represented a very particular thing uh, and fit a very particular context. Mm -hmm. And he was very powerful 
and thoughtful and brilliant and articulated the struggles, the pains of black people and people of color in a way that nobody else could. And I think that that's why he, he, his legacy kind of um, is still still with us um, in the way that it is. But I don't know that that's the answer to today's challenges. Mm-hmm. I think that what the, a primary challenge that we're facing is that we think that there's just a way to, to do this work. You know, it is hard work. It is time consuming. Yeah. It is uh, it, it, it involves your energy, your efforts, your sacrifices. And, you know, for all of the Christians who are out there, you know, Christianity is not a religion of reciprocity. It's really about sowing in faith. Mm-hmm. And I think that we lack the ability um, or even the insight at this particular junction um, uh, of our culture to really see the value in sacrifice and sowing in faith, knowing that we, you know, to Dr. King's last speech, you know, he may not, he said he may not get there with us, but we will get to the promised land. And I think that that speaks to a type of resolve and connectedness to collective, um, collective movement Mm -hmm. that um, we don't see reflected. So, you know, to back up a little bit, I think that it really takes us coming to an understanding that this work actually involves us showing up (laughs) you know this work actually involves us being present this work involves us not only tweeting but writing on facebook not only writing on facebook but going to the meeting not only going to the meeting but giving up our saturday our sunday brunch to you know be somewhere in conversation with somebody who might have an issue that's similar to ours and figuring out how to pull together our resources Mm -hmm. and uh, pull other people to our team or our issue Mm -hmm. You know, it, it takes that type of work, you know, and there's so many uh, young people. Um, you think about the Parkland uh, uh, high schoolers, you know, and quite a few of, of my friends who I've seen work tirelessly, work themselves into the hospital, literally, because uh-huh. um, they don't sleep. They do this work. It's on their mind. They're writing about it. They're thinking about it. They're showing up to meetings. They're uh, having conversations with politicians and policymakers, uh-huh. you know. Um, and it, it, that's the level of intensity uh, and commitment that this type of work requires. And I think that if um, we could get more folks committed to being selfless, mm-hmm. then we would be in a much better position. Good luck with that in America. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, you said something that you said that, you know, Christianity is not about reciprocity. What do you mean when you say that? And what do you feel like Christianity is about? Yeah. So I, Christianity is not about like, I do this for you, then you do this for me. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, righteousness is not rooted in a concept of reciprocity. It's really rooted in um, an idea of selflessness and self-sacrifice or self-emptying um, uh, in, in many ways to resemble the, the actions, the life, the work of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right. He didn't, he didn't come to the world saying, worship me. He came to the world saying, follow me, right? Like, and, and I think that that's the difference that there isn't, I think that there is this, as a culture, we think that because we do something, we're supposed to receive something um, kind of as a benefit of what we've done. Mm-hmm. Not that we do something and we've done it just because we know it's good to do and we may never see the benefit, right. but maybe somebody else will. Right. Um, and so that's what I mean about Christianity being about reciprocity, um, not being about reciprocity and more about like sowing. You know, so what we do is really an investment into the kind of soil of our lives, mm-hmm. our culture, our spirituality that may take root and blossom at a time that we don't even exist. Yeah. But at least we're our best effort to, to make sure that we're investing in and meaningful and in, um, in helpful ways um, so that, you know, folks 
who come after us can eat from the fruits that you know that we that we've we uh from the the seeds of the the fruits that we you know we planted um you know in time so that for me is like the kind of core of kind of the christian witness um and christian identity it's just uh, understanding that particularly in the moment where like you know prosperity is possible and in this kind of new age you and i've had this conversation before the whole let's hop around and like worship, worship, worship Jesus and not acknowledge the fact that, you know, people got real issues yeah. and if they need to go to God and kind of holler about it a little bit, let them do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that, that and I don't want to get too much of, of, you know, the topic, but I do think that that's a very important part of that's, that speaks to kind of why I feel like we don't see as much organizing and engagement, maybe on some level. Like I, um, I often, say um when i'm setting up this particular song that i sing that whenever you in- infuse your theology with capitalism you create a space where people always want to get something and i just think that where yeah. we are now i don't i mean it's really difficult i think to have a conversation about righteousness in the way that you articulated it which i think is great um and have that with people who live in whatever element of privilege that is, whether it's, you know, white privilege, male privilege, you know, whether you are affluent or whatever it is, and then just say you should just, you know, do other things because it's right to do, you know, not because of what you can get from it. And I'm not saying that's everybody, um, mm-hmm. but I think it's hard to have that that conversation with a lot of people. You know, on both ends of the spectrum, people who do have stuff because they're like, well, I'm just, you know, I earned it. <laughs> it's mine. I'm supposed to have it. And, and uh-huh. on, the, on, the, on the lower end, in terms of, of a social economic uh, measurement, who are saying, look, I don't have time to be doing stuff for other people. I have to do things for me because if I don't, nobody else is and I have to survive. Right. So I, how do you I don't know what the message is to you know, those folks to, to say, look, I know that you are, you know, struggling and it's tough for you, but we have to think about the people who are coming after us or the people who are in our house or people who are, you know, we're connected to your family, your children, your siblings, your spouse or whatever. Um, anyway, so, 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 so moving, moving on, like thinking about, you reference Reverend Barber and people can research him if you, if you, he's an, he's an amazing, um, amazing man, you know, great contributor to, you know, society and the world at large in terms of the work that he's doing in North Carolina and around the globe. Um, but he talks a lot about, you know, gerrymandering and redlining and the like. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of, I mean, I, I know people are going to feel like it's beating a dead horse, but the importance of voting in local elections the types of positions that people um, are running for? Because people, I think, sometimes just think about presidents and Congress people. Like, that's kind of the scope of it for most folks. Can you talk about the importance of voting, how people can register to vote if they're not, and, you know, the impact of voting in local local, um, election? Um, Yeah, so... um First of all, um, <laughs> uh, beyond the fact that voting is important, um, uh, everything in our lives, you know, particularly as a, Americans and all the folks around the world who are impacted by our policy uh, policies. Um, Sorry. 
<laughs> I was part of what all that was. Uh, but all everything in our lives is impacted by uh, the folks who make the decisions around how we will or will not access resources. And so that's from judges to mayors to city council people to aldermen to uh, congressional leaders to state reps, um, governors, um, all of those folks essentially, you know, make decisions on our behalf. I'm paraphrasing, but this is kind of what you said. Voting is about I guess, electing people who will decide how we do or do not access resources? Yes. And, and yeah, and, and I think about it from this perspective, you know, just thinking about some of the current policies and the, the uh, current administration um, with regard to food stamps uh-huh. and the kind of asinine parameters they're putting around how folks access food stamps. Uh-huh. You know, um, even to some of the stuff that happened locally, um, um, recommended by folks in your state, you know, suggesting that uh, folks who <clears throat> are on food stamps shouldn't be able to buy seafood. You know, like how ridiculous is that? Yeah. Um, and so, it, you know, it's those types of things that these people are sitting in some, you know, room, never touched a person who's who's been on food stamps or, or has needed public assistance yeah. and you're trying to make decisions for them because you think that they're draining, uh, you know, from the system when you have like white collar crime every single day where they're actually draining from the system and actually caused a recession, right. <laughs> you yeah. know? So, you know, when you think about that, the system has really been depleted by, you know, greedy folks, um, from wall street to, you know, uh, Capitol Hill. And so, with that in mind, you know, just think about the fact that every person who is in elected office um, and the folks who are appointed by the folks who are in elected office, essentially, um, they are your voice in the, the, the chambers uh, uh, where dec- decisions are made, you know, and so they control whether or not you have or, have or don't have access to certain resources. And so, with you know, as a kind of base way of thinking about it, you know, that's kind of an entry, a kind of common entry point that I think everyone can think about when you go in and, um, you know, they're judges on, and there've been plenty of times I've been to vote and I'm just like, wait, who is this? (laughs) You know, and I've had, you know, I've had to like repent and really do my research for the next time around. Um, and so, um, I'm sorry. And so, you know, that, that for me is, uh, really, um, a way of thinking about it. But to your original question, uh, so there are many ways to, to get registered to vote. Um, you can go to your local registrar. Um, so normally it's a county situation, a county by county basis in Georgia. Uh, it was very much the case. Uh, so for Fulton County, you go downtown uh, Atlanta to the county office, mm-hmm. uh, register to vote there. Um, there are plenty of ways you can do it online. Just go to the Google search engine and type in register to vote. Yeah. And Rock the Vote will come up. Um, you can do it online. Uh, they'll take you to your state um, voter registrar's website. Uh, you can sign up there. Uh, and then um, at most uh, DMVs, you can register to vote. Um, they have the uh, paperwork that you can fill out there. But there, you know, all the places that we touch on a regular basis, even public libraries, um, have access uh, to computers and also the kind of um, raw pen and paper material where you can register to vote. Um, so, it, you know, with the, 
even if you have a, a smartphone, you know, you can go to the NAACP website, you know, they have resources to lead people to, uh, to register to vote. And I think that you're going to be adding something on your website soon. Yeah. Uh, but there, yeah. there are plenty of ways to do it. Like, even if it's simply rock the boat, type it in your phone on the, the search bar, type it on your computer on the search bar. Uh, but there are a host of ways to do it. And it's all in ways that are accessible to everybody. I think, well, I think those are, are really important. I, I did too want to look at, like, I think what you said, you know, again, I want people to just really get that, that, you know, the, that voting is about electing folks who decide how you'll, you will or will not be able to access certain resources. Um, what we, another thing that we will do for everybody, everybody listening is we will put a link for Rock the Vote in the show notes. So if you, you, you should, I mean, you, if you've read the show notes, you have already seen it or you have not read the show notes, you can go there and just click on the link for rock to vote and you can register to vote there. Um, but I think that one of the things people don't think about necessarily in the age of, um, you know, all of these visuals with police brutality happening, people are not thinking about, you know, the judges who are elected and the sheriffs who are elected. Um, and, and I think that we don't talk, in my estimation, enough about that and the DAs, um, you know, who are elected. Like there's the, the DA in Philadelphia. I think his name is, is it Kistner? I'm not sure who the DA is uh, there. But the DA in Philadelphia um, who was recently elected and he has done some really incredible things um, to combat you know, the criminal justice system, um, it, you know, well, yeah, and <laughs> combat it because it needs to be, it needs, it needs that in some places. But he basically, you know, came into office and he got rid of uh, a lot of the prosecutors um, who were not on board with his program. Um, he um, basically told, you know, police uh, officers, um well, I mean, if they're going to arrest people, he told them really not to arrest people or not to, he basically said not to charge people for, you know, low levels of uh, marijuana. Um, he's looking at changing the the uh, the system in terms of how they do parole. I mean, all of these things. He, he basically, one of the probably most um, impactful things he did was he told the prosecutors, if you're going to recommend jail time for someone, you need to detail out how much that's going to cost taxpayers and explain why it makes sense, given that cost, to put this person in jail for that amount of time. Like, is, is their yeah. crime or the crime they're being charged with or convicted of, does it, you know, merit that type of jail time, given how much money we're going to spend incarcerating them versus how we could redirect those funds to education prevention. Like I mean, it's, it's just so brilliantly done. Uh, his name is Larry Krasner, K-R-A-S-N-E-R. Um, if you want to read up, you can, you can just Google Larry Krasner and the whole memo that he sent, not the whole thing, but a lot of it is online. You can read about it, read the notes. I mean, I, mean, I was just blown away that someone like this is, you know, an elected official. And to the point that we were talking about and are discussing about voting, that is why it is so important. Um, I don't live in Atlanta proper, but I'm in the metropolitan area. And uh, Keisha Lance Bottom, as you know, is the new mayor. And she decriminalized, uh, I'm not, not decriminalized marijuana. She did away with um, cash bonds. So people who are in, who are arrested for nonviolent um, crimes or violations of, of uh, city codes, um, basically can just, you know, have a sick, they just sign their names basically. And they 
go home until their trial date. So they're not kept in jail, you know, for weeks and months without a trial for a traffic ticket or for, you know, because police right. have a lot of leeway and they can arrest you or they can, I mean, a police officer, I mean, people listening have been, and I'm sure you as well have been pulled over by police officers for speeding. Sometimes they give you a ticket. Sometimes they write mm-hmm. you a warning. They have that discretion, right? And, and a lot mm-hmm. of times they, <laughs> you know, depending on the mood they're in, how you respond to them, whatever the case is, you know, they, they do one thing or the other. And so I think that going back to what we're talking about, it is super important to look at all of the things happening in your local community and exercise your right to vote, talk to people about what it is that's happening, you know, and, and look at the agenda uh, of these folks. Um, we live in, a, in, in an age right now where, you know, we have all this technology, right? We have apps, we have everything else. Um do you feel like in the age of technology um, that we need representatives, right? You know what I mean? Like, cause, I mean, if we look at it in a literal context, represent means to represent, right? So someone is there presenting your, they're supposed to be at least, <laughs> presenting your interests, your concerns, mm-hmm. or the like. But since everyone has a platform and everyone has a voice, is, do we need representatives? And if we do, does it look the same as it did before we had all the technology we have now? Um, so representative, you mean like elected officials type representatives yeah. or? Uh, yeah. So, well, so here's the challenge. Um, and it's a kind of <laughs> one of the challenges I think uh, a lot of folks were uh, frustrated with in 2016 uh, when we got a new president. Um but the challenge is that we, uh, we have fortunately or unfortunately have a constitution that makes us a representative kind of democracy, um, a republic, if you will. And um, I think there is the age old kind of challenge in America generally with having an equally represented democracy, right? Uh, and I think about that even in how um, the lack of democracy has been reflected in in, in laws, you know, and you think about Plessy versus, mm-hmm. versus Ferguson, um, this whole separate and equal, um, you know, and this is where the conversation around equity emerges, you know, like there's no way for that to, to be a real thing, you know, uh, particularly when uh, equality is kind of, rest on <laughs> privileges and access, right? So that one is based, didn't make sense. Um, but then are the kind of the, the other pieces around codes and laws and things like that. Um, so I do think to a, a degree that, you know, it's something that we can't get away from, but to the extent to which we can um, really assert a unified voice around how democracy works, um, I think that we need to be very clear about what the challenges mm-hmm. or issues are and really be able to the point that you made earlier, um, connect with elected officials um, in a way that they can hear our collective thoughts and voices mm-hmm. on a particular issue and address it in a way that we think that they need to, right? Uh, because the other reality is like they're essentially hired by the people via their vote to do the work. And many of those folks are paid, uh, whether it be from a municipality or, uh, you know, federal coffers. Um, so I think to that degree, um, 
the original point that I made about being invested, involved, committed to some degree is extremely, extremely important and realizing that it takes mm-hmm. time, energy and effort. You know, I tweeted the other day about like folks, um, you know, we're going crazy about uh, Coachella, Baychella, yeah. whatever they call it now. Uh, folks been going crazy about Cardi B and Nicki Minaj. And, you know, so many people I know are talking about, you know, came through dripping and, you know, all of this. But at the same time, like you have like Maxine Waters, who's almost 80 years old, Auntie Maxine, we love her. Uh, but she's arguing with, you know, folks on the House of uh, mm-hmm. the Floor of Congress around um, discrimination on uh, and, and, and um, how uh, auto loans are kind of uh, yeah. are, are determined and decided what not. And so, you know, you have this woman who's still going hard for us and we're not paying, paying any attention to the kind of nuance, you know, issues that uh, around deregulation and discrimination um, that are happening um, or being rolled back, I should say, um, in, under this new administration. Um, and it's going to impact us in our communities in major ways. You know, um, I forget the name of the uh, congressman from Pennsylvania who mm-hmm. she was in conversation with. Um, but he essentially, he essentially said, let's not talk about discrimination. discrimination. Yeah. Let's talk about our nation. Like what, what, you know, (laughs) so it's just like these moments where folks can be so oblivious and detached and, you know, you have these uh, folks, you know, folks out here like uh, Maxine Waters who have been doing this for forever. You know, where's her support? I I think people don't, again, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take a leap here and say people aren't paying attention in large part because they don't understand it. You know, in a broad sense, I don't know that they understand how it impacts them directly. But, you know, I think that I think that that is an easy way out, particularly I feel like folks understand what they want to understand. You know, there is space. Do you find most people of color understand how auto loans, I mean, how discrimination through policy works with auto loans? Well, I think that they can understand it, right? I think that they know that they they will have a particular experience when they go to get a car, and you know the uh, and they're mad about it, <laughs> <laughs> and their interest rate is you know seventeen or eighteen percent, right? Like that's yeah. a problem yeah. for anybody, and I think the extent to which you ask questions about that is important. And I'll circle back just yeah. for a second to um, tell you a story. So I was listening to NPR the other day, and there was a woman who had something happen, some surgery with her shoulder or whatever in her foot, and she ended up having to get screws in her foot um, and her shoulder. She was in the hospital for like two or three days, uh, but she got a bill. A uh, woman, you know, middle-income woman making probably about $50,000 a year, got a bill for $115,000. And so she was trying to figure out how in the world she got a bill for $115,000 for, you know, a very minor surgery that only involved her getting three screws in her foot. So she asked the mm-hmm. hospital for an itemized bill um, so she could see like what the specific charges were. She found out that she was being charged $3,000 for screws, tiny screws to go into her feet. $3,000. Now this was like, a, I think it was about a 2000% markup. Think about that, mm. you know. And so after she did the, um, she did her research. She contacted a local news station. Local news station got in contact with like NPR. So they did some investigative research and contacted the hospital insurance company. And they ended up just dismissing the woman's bill completely. 
You know, so think about how we're being ripped off. And all it took was not her, you know, knowing the ins and outs of policy, but saying, like, hold on, this doesn't make sense. Like, why? You know, asking just the next question, not like, okay, I'm just about to figure out how to pay this $115,000 and that's it. But just asking questions really goes a long way. And that's what I mean about, like, being committed to your own survival. Uh, You know, you're just not going to let anybody do and say whatever they they, they want to you. And, you know, again, back to a conversation you and I had in the past just about, like, you know, the approach um, of of some politicians. It's just like, you know, let's tiptoe around issues. Let's not address it. But a lot of these issues are life and death issues for people, right? Like, if, if someone was holding a gun to your child's head, you would do everything in your power to make sure you preserve your child's life. And I feel like that's how we ought to tackle these issues on a daily basis. And that's how politicians need to go into these rooms where they're um, in debate and conversation with other, other leaders uh, um, around how to, you know, how to create and craft policy that really meets the need of um, the most vulnerable among us. And uh, at the end of the day, I feel like that's the charge of, of Christians. Um, I feel like that's the charge of, you know, that's the charge that I kind of take to heart, you know, thinking about what mm-hmm. role I play in the midst of all of this, you know, uh, whatever little. I'm sorry. Part of that, like that challenge is you know, going back to the car issue is like, you know, people want things because it's a part of what happened and what we see and what we experience and what we expect in America. It's what we are told we can get that we have a right to, that we almost have a sense of you know, entitlement to. And so when you look at, I, made, I had this conversation with a friend of mine who works um, in uh, education in Baltimore, uh, really, really, really smart guy. And I told him, I, I said that, you know, part of the way that I reconcile where we are and not be overwhelmed and just like go move to a remote place and just, <laughs> you know, watch is I think about kids, and I because I don't know that some of the older people are going to get it, but I do think that 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 one of the hugest, the one of the biggest problems is is equity in education, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm saying. I think that if we lived in an ideal, you know, world or country where kids had access to the same information, right, in terms of how we disseminate that, and, you know how we equip them to learn. Not every child is going to learn at the same, you know, rate or perform on the same level, Mm -hmm. but that's not even something that is possible when you have kids in in impoverished communities who are as smart, quote unquote, whatever that means Mm -hmm. as any other kid, but they don't have the resources. Mm -hmm. And so they are, they are handicapped, you know, by a system that continues to affect them negatively and so then they are the the person who you know does what they can, whose family supports them, you know, who goes to get a car, and who just really is ignorant of how it all works. Like even as a young person myself, I grew up in Memphis, grew up with a family who loved me, you know, supported me. They didn't teach me about interest rates. Mm-hmm. Like literally, I had no concept of what that even meant. Mm-hmm. As a person who was a reader, who graduated graduated in the top of 10%, 10% of my class, no idea. So they told mm-hmm. me, like, this is how much your car is, because this is the thing. Like, the question that you were asked, and I know for the listeners, we didn't mean to go off on a tangent about cars, but we're making a point. Like, <laughs> the, the question that they asked you is, how much do you want to pay a month? That's what they ask you. And most people say, this is what I can afford. 
Like, yeah. they're not telling you, you say I can afford three fifty a month. They're not telling you that two fifty is going towards interest and only one fifty is going towards the principal, right? Mm-hmm. Because of the way that we're educated and how we are taught about money and you know uh, all these other things, business stuff, like just the way that you know economy works. A lot of us do not get that. And so I think that a lot of it has to do with, you know, our education systems and, you know, family history and all the other stuff. But when we're talking about that, you know, people feel like I work hard. I deserve a car. So even if I'm paying, you know, you know, twice as much (laughs) as a car is worth, as long as I can leave off this lot and say, you know, God bless me with a new car. That's all that matters. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally get that. I think that to a great degree, like we look to things to grant value to ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that if you situate that mentality in a larger context of uh, kind of discrimination and um, mm-hmm. kind of the blatant um, kind of cultural realities of how black life is uh, dismissed and diminished and et cetera. Um, I think that that makes sense in that context. Um, but, you know, I also think about the fact that you brought up, you brought up Memphis and, um, uh, I was reading this book. Um, it's one of, one of my favorites It's called when affirmative action was white. Um, but in it, they talk about how like in the 1940s and fifties, uh, in Tennessee specifically, uh, where the population was kind of half black, um, you know, the ratio uh, black to white institutions, higher education institutions was, you know, uh, dramatic as far as like the disparity. I think they were in the single digits for, for, uh, for black schools, uh, black institutions. Mm-hmm. And then there were like 30 or between 30 and 40, um, you know, white institutions, but you had like a, a literally, uh, a, a fully mixed, um, kind of scenario with regard to the, uh, racial demographics mm-hmm. and, and that means a lot to how folks have been educated over time um, and kind of what that means um, with regard to uh, folks' opportunity to participate in the local economy, um, state economy, and, and um, what that meant for generations after them, right? So it's not that, you know, we're in 2018 and folks are just undereducated. It's that in 1945 and 1930 mm-hmm. and 1890, mm-hmm. we were actually denied access to really have meaningful education and to participate in an economy in a way that we can could build wealth and you know really have a meaningful meaningful sources of revenue. Yeah. Um, and so that that means a lot. And that's not and that doesn't even you know encompass the cultural and social dynamics that were also at play, um, you know, for around exclusion and, you know, whites only for entrances Uh and for water fountains and things like that, all of those kind of social cues to kind of suggest that you're not as valuable. Right. And I think it was Dr. King that said the ultimate logic of racism is genocide, right? Uh Because we don't value your your life. Uh We don't value who you are as an individual Uh and we can actually just your utility. So it's essentially like we become, to Zora Neale Hurston's kind of analogy, the, the mules of the earth, you know, to a great degree. Mm. You know, you know, to that point, like thinking about that and thinking about, you know, what you just said about, 
you know, racism and and genocide and mules of the earth and just how human some human beings are looked at, you know, as disposable um, and, you know, utilitarian as it relates to like workforce. <laughs> like that's really kind of all how we right. see you. Um, we're going back to what we were talking about with voting and government. This is this is part of what I feel like the problem is. I was listening to. Um, I forget the lady's name, but she's running as a Democrat for Congress, and she introduced, um, I guess it's a bill to basically allow her uh, campaign funds to be used to pay for childcare, mm-hmm. and because she's you know she has two small kids, and basically she was like, I can't, I'm not wealthy, <laughs> so. I either have to work or run for office, like, and I can't do oh. do both. Mm-hmm. So, which started me to doing a little bit of research based on what she said, and I didn't realize uh, that uh, more, more, maybe more than half of Congress um, are millionaires. Mm-hmm. And, and so, like, how can you have <laughs> a representative government? that understands the plight of the people if the majority of them or even a third of them identify as a millionaire. Right. Like I, that just makes absolutely no, I mean, and they're making policies for working people that will not directly affect them. They're making policies regarding healthcare that will not affect them. They're making policies regarding, you know, where the military will and won't go. Right. When their children are not the ones out there. And I just think that we have I think that's a a huge problem for me, because I think government needs to be more representative of the people in in every area, in every way, you know, demographics and social economic and all of that. But also, I think that Democrats specifically need to start supporting, you know, more people, maybe people who are part of, you know, Black Lives Matter and you know, uh, dream defenders and the like people who have these issues, who understand these issues, who embody these issues, um, and putting dollars behind these people, um, to get people in office who really do understand what's happening on the mm-hmm. ground, right. Who really, who really have a, an intimate knowledge of how this oppressive system is affecting people on a regular basis. Yeah, no. And so I totally, totally, totally hear that point. Um, and I do think to a great degree, um, our government configuration, particularly Congress is plutocratic in the more traditional sense. However, I do think that there are, you know, there's a possibility that there are millionaires who are in Congress who really get what's happening on the ground because they stay connected to the people. Right. And I think that that's the difference when it, your power is, uh, or your ability to, to be in a position of power is really driven by wealth. Um, I think that that's the challenge, but when your ability to be in power is driven by the will of the people is something completely different because they, they trust you. They believe in your ability to kind of hear, um, and translate their, their challenges and concerns in a meaningful way. Um, so I, I, I don't want to, you know, exclude millionaires <laughs> on the basis of, you know, just wealth um, acquisition. But I do think um, that folks who are attentive to to the ground, you know, who are really rooted and planted in community and can translate concerns, uh, be a policy or be a conversation or be a, be a some type of uh, scenario that, you know, affirms the voices and, 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 and uh, aspirations of particular communities, um, you know, I'm, you know, I'm 
I'm all about that, you know. So whether it's a millionaire or you know a, a hundredaire, whoever it is, <laughs> but, like, yeah, but, but there are millionaires in America. So so I'm not saying that there should be no millionaires in Congress. I'm just saying like I don't feel like it. Sh- I just feel like if you have half of Congress, you know, who are millionaires and they're still taking a salary from taxpayers, which is a whole nother conversation to me. Like I just feel like they're not going to be people who are going to have the same. Uh, intimate knowledge of certain issues as I would because I'm not a millionaire, right? Somebody else, like somebody mm-hmm. who, li- like you're not, you don't, you can represent these districts um, and these states and these, um, you know, uh, different regions of the country. And I'm not saying you can't do that um, if you're if you're a wealthy person. I think that you can, but I think you're more likely to advocate ish policies that help people who you really identify with. I mean, that's what they all do. And what happens is you have people yeah. get, in a, get in the Congress, you know, and that's why, you know, the meetings with lobbyists matter more to them, you know, and, and term limits and other stuff. Anyway, I don't want to drag on, you know, on that. Like we, 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 we can talk, we can talk on and on. Um, I know you have other things to do. I really want to thank you for your time and ask you, if you have any closing comments, thoughts, um, things you think are important that you want to leave with the audience. Yeah, no. So first of all, just thank you for uh, having me on the show. I appreciate that. You've had some really phenomenal guests. and I've had a chance to listen to some of the episodes prior to this one. Um, But I do think that the uh, issue of uh, really acknowledging the work of civil rights organizations um, is is important. But I think also... uh, Engaging those organizations as bearers of, of, of our collective history and um, to a certain degree um, representing, uh, you know, our people and um, attempting to be a voice for our people um, um, and being accountable for how that happens is important. So, so, so important moving forward. Um, because as we've seen with like the proxy of a Kanye West, a few ignorant comments can really set off a, a whirlwind of enablement for folks who have held these kind of um, regressive um, views for a long time, you know, and I, I was fortunate enough the other day listening to Michael Basden show, um, heard him cut off a guy who called in to say like, yeah, I'm a white guy. And, uh, you know, I think that what Kanye West said was right. He was like, no, man, you're wrong. Next caller. <laughs> so, you know, I feel like <clears throat> to the degree to which, you know, uh, we are silent and we are, um, moving in ways that are counterproductive. Um, I equate that to a level of silence, and uh, we all know that silence uh, uh, is complicity with regard to how we um, look at discrimination and the various challenges that we're facing uh, as as people of color uh, and people of of of, um, of will who really want to see a difference. So, you know, for me, that's that's important. As you know, that's a lot of. Um, how I, I try to, to move in the world and um, just kind of stepping out of a position of just merely critiquing, but thinking constructive, constructively about like, how do we move together uh, in a way that we can build community um, and be held accountable uh, one to another for the work that we're doing yeah. on, on behalf or that we claim to be doing on behalf of, um, you know, the uplift of our people. So that's all that I uh, wanted to leave with you. Thank you, brother. Wayne. appreciate you. <laughs> Thank you. How oh, do you have a social media info? People can follow you. If they'd like. Oh yeah. So uh, I'm on Twitter uh, at Dame Alexander. 
D-A-M-E-A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R. Uh, I don't know why it took me so long to spell that. It's been my name for a long time. Uh, but uh, I'm really only on Twitter. Uh, Instagram is a whole other thing. So, yep, <laughs> that's where I am. Okay, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this conversation. Um, for all those who are listening, thank you for your time, for listening. I hope we've said something, uh, Damien has shared something with you that has, you know, given you some insight that has uh, shown you a different perspective, pun intended, about the importance of um, civil rights organizations then and now, um, the importance of voting. And I hope this inspires you, if you're not engaged, to become engaged, if you are engaged, to tell somebody else, um, you know, spread the word, because we need each other to help this thing move forward. Um, thank you again for sharing. Uh, and we'll see you guys uh, or listen to you guys. I'm sorry. I'll talk to you guys <laughs> in our next episode. Take care.